0: here today to discuss uh, an example of political action on the part of the working class at the point of production. So this is a reading in the Time of Monsters podcast. This is episode 11, and we'll be discussing the 2005 history book, Revolution and Counter-Revolution, Class Struggle in a Moscow Metal Factory, with Kevin Murphy. And I have Kevin Murphy here on the podcast with me. Hello, Kevin.
1: Hey, Pete, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, uh, so just a little bit about this book for the audience. Uh, this was written in 2005, or published in 2005. Uh, it's an examination of the on-the-ground uh, activities within one particular Moscow metal factory between the Russian Revolution and it sort of ends, I guess, with the accession of Stalin uh, to the leadership of the Soviet Union. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, that's 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 a good starting point. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: it won the. It's a great book. Um, you know, I, when I read it, I was uh, very intrigued, and I was I was really glad that I I knew Kevin enough to be able to ask him to be on here. It was a winner of the 2005 Isaac and Tamara Deutscher Memorial Prize which is awarded every year for a book that is uh, an example of the best and most innovative new writing in the Marxist tradition or about the Marxist tradition. Kevin teaches Russian history at UMass, the University of Massachusetts at Boston, and he did a lot of pretty serious archival shovel work in Russia uh, to uncover this history. Um, so uh, sort of a little overview um, of the of the context here and why I thought it was worth bringing it up is we have this century of dispute among historians and organizers about what happened with the revolution in Russia, what led to the rise of Stalin after you know, the huge hopes of the revolution 1917. And what we see here, I, th- I think it's fair to say Kevin, that your work is rejecting the thesis. That Stalin is the inevitable endpoint of any revolution, rejecting, but also at the same time rejecting the idea that Stalin was, uh, that, that you do see with some accounts that uh, kind of apologizing for Stalin. I don't think that's what we're doing here. We're trying to understand what happened, what led to this uh, downgrading of the hopes of the Russian Revolution. Would you say that's
1: accurate? yes so that that's that's a great uh, overview and i i think it makes sense for me to say a few words about how i sort of started the project and what i was trying to do mm. um and in fact i was trying to answer a lot of the larger questions about the the russian revolution generally and then specifically how it relates how it related to the working class mm. um and in fact uh as an overambitious grad student, uh, I told my professor and my advisor that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write the book on the Soviet working class and uh, the advent of Stalinism. And, and his response was, that's great, but um, you might be biting off a little bit more than you can chew. And he convinced me to think in terms of uh, sources. Mm. And his argument was that um, to really get a feel and understanding for what was happening at the grassroots level uh, necessitated going to the factory level and even the shop Mm. level. Mm. Um, And there's a number of reasons for this. One is from from a social historian perspective, uh, the lower you go, Um, the more you can really get an insight into what workers were thinking uh, and doing. And this, of course, was popular uh, in European uh, and American uh, historiography, but uh, much less so uh, in Soviet history where Stalinism seemed to dominate. And there Mm -hmm. were a few, uh, before the archives opened up, there were a few, very few uh, studies Uh, at the grassroots level. So by looking at the sources, uh, the other advantage of doing it from the factory level is that that is how Soviet society was organized. That Mm. is you had trade union, um, secret police, whether it was the Akrona before the revolution or um, the OGPU, the secret police in the Cheka after the revolution, Um, but you also had trade union, party records, mm-hmm. uh, that, there were two factory newspapers for this factory, mm-hmm. um, so a, a very wide variety of sources that um, included minutes of all these political meetings, whether trade union party, party cell, uh, even at the shop level, they had um, they kept the records of these meetings and they also had a tradition um, which goes back to 1917 in which workers could, without even putting their name on a piece of paper, ask the speaker um, various questions or even denounce the speaker, which was Mm. a very unfiltered source Mm. uh, for getting uh, an assessment of what workers were thinking and doing at the factory level. So in short, what I decided to do was, was take his advice, heed his advice, Um, And based on the quality of sources for this uh, factory, the hammer and sickle factory uh, before the revolution, it was called the Goujon factory uh, from a French uh, entrepreneur. Mm. Um, The quality of the sources is what dictated sort of where I was going to go with this. And the other, the other advantage of doing um, micro history is that it allows you to expand the temporal boundaries so basically i did a study of this one factory from the rising revolutionary period um at the turn of the century all the way up to the advent of stalinism um, in 19, 1930 uh 1932 that era um now the disadvantage i just i do want to say that there's obviously there's a problematic uh issue with this mm-hmm. is that Um, I did want to attempt to write an important book on the Soviet uh, working class uh, throughout the revolutionary period, but I also understood that there was a problem in overgeneralizing Hmm. uh, from one particular factory. And so what we can get into that during the discussion about how I tried to finesse that and try to show that some of the trends within this one factory um, either were or were not uh, generalized within the, the Soviet working class.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating approach because so much, at least from what I've seen, I can't claim to be an expert on Russian history. I have read a certain amount of the back and forth about, how to interpret the Russian Revolution, how to interpret uh, the rise of Stalinism. And so much of it turns on uh, fairly, uh, sometimes on abstract uh, political classifications, whether something belongs in this category or another, often based on high politics, right? The writings and deeds of the central people involved, Stalin, uh, Trotsky, Lenin, Zinoviev, and so on. Um, and those are all very you know I'm not I'm not speaking against that approach that's all extremely important but it is very different to get this ground level approach from the workers who are supposed to be the agents of this revolution right like you said the basis of society were supposed to be these the Soviets right the councils of workers the the organized uh working class uh so I I really, got a lot out of reading this. So let's uh, if it works for you, why don't we could you take us through kind of the basic arc of these metal workers relationship to the revolution into uh, the Soviet government kind of
1: a kind of a rough timeline? Sure. so so for the pre-revolutionary period, um, I spent a lot of time sort of focusing on um, the strike movement. Uh, which has been largely written, in my view, has been unfairly um, trivialized. That is, the strike movement from the Lena massacre in 1912 to 1916 was the largest strike mo- movement in the history of the world, um, anywhere—Europe, uh, uh, Western Europe, Asia, anywhere—and. What I attempted to do was look at the the Akrana, the political police reports, um, and then also look at uh, factory management um, letters from from uh, Goujon, the the French entrepreneur who was also the head of um, the metal workers uh, syndicate, mm. and try to get an assessment of how they looked at this at. The workers and what they were attempting to do. And the Akrona reports were probably the most useful because what they showed is that time and again, even at the shop level, and this makes sense to me for anybody like yourself who's been involved in politics, the presence or absence of a few well-paced placed militants can mean the difference between galvanizing a larger section of a workplace or a union. Um, and that is pretty much the argument that, uh, that I made. And and it was not just the Bolsheviks. Uh, in fact, in this factory, uh, the socialist revolutionaries played uh, mm. this uh, catalytic uh, role of um, engaging a, a wider milieu of workers. And what I tried to show was that a lot of times this could even be dependent on um, one or several workers in a particular shop. That is, the strike reports sometimes were even at that level. But every time there was a strike, the Akrona would, right after the strike, they would announce who was involved in it, and they would be arrested and what I found amazing about the pre-revolutionary period is that um, time and again, despite these massive arrests and the Akrona in uh, Moscow was known for being um, particularly vicious and well organized uh, versus St. Petersburg, where the movement, um, uh, the workers movement was stronger. They would wipe out the cell, but there would be a new milieu of a few workers who would take up the banner and continue the strike movement so I, fa- I found that pretty fascinating and then the other thing about the um, the pre-revolutionary period that I found uh, interesting was that um, to get ga- to gain unity and to come in part to combat the work of the Akrona and management to stifle the movement that as young workers, and women by 1917, women uh, because of the war mm. um, played a more important role, and that meant to, to forge unity uh, in the in the workplace in this metal factory. It meant taking their concerns over um, wage issues over. Um, management, sexual harassment, yeah. over any number of issues started to play much more of a role. That it was not just, let's get all the workers together and and fight as one. It, they had to address the concerns. The, the militants in the factory recognized that they had to take the concern c- concerns and demands of less privileged workers who were often um, making... About a quarter of what uh, the more skilled metal workers were making um, and address their concerns to have any hope of combating uh, the employer. So I found that forging of unity and then also uh, the level of militancy. The level of militancy and how they circumvented management, uh, pretty fascinating in the pre-revolutionary period. And then that extends to 1917. Mm. Although in 1917... Uh, fortunately, you know that one of the first things the workers did uh, in Moscow and uh, in other cities was sack the Okrona offices, mm. which is um, which was a good thing. I don't want to oh, sound, yeah. sound like I'm neutral on it, but it also made it more problematic to 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 try to um, to figure out what was happening in the factory level. And what... mm. the argument for 1917 that I made was that. Um, that the Bolsheviks clearly they sent in some some organizers, but it was also the weakness of the of the other left groups, including mm-hmm. the Mensheviks uh, and the SRs, who mm-hmm. um, were depicted quite accurately as being pro-war. And yeah, in fact, yeah. at one of the meetings, um, uh, I believe it was Bukharin comes in and says, "Well, why don't why don't these speakers of the SRs?" who are so pro, pro-war. pro Why don't they so, sign up and go to the front if they're uh. so uh, uh, enamored with this uh, this war that they're talking about? So oh, wow. the, the contours of 1917 goes from the Bolsheviks being a slim minority um, to really along with the left SRs. The SRs went through a split with mm-hmm. the left SRs essentially siding with the Bolsheviks. Um, and uh, having dominance in the factory by October. So that's, it, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but the, the issues of, of the war, wage issues, um, Goujon attempted to close down the factory, which was um, challenged by the trade union. Um, so there's a, there's a deepening crisis, that, but then also it's met by a well-organized uh, and militant working class that, um, uh, that eventually ends up uh, siding with the revolution by October.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So you have this kind of much, much more than I think a lot of people would necessarily appreciate this really rich milieu of militancy on the shop floor in Moscow and uh, perhaps the rest of Russia uh so just for for the listeners, the, the SRs, the Socialist Revolutionaries, were another uh, socialist formation that was involved uh, agitating for socialism and eventually involving themselves in the Russian Revolution alongside the Bolsheviks, but also sort of rivals to the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks come out of the Russian Social Democratic Party, uh, the Social Revolutionaries both uh left and right come out of the older kind of agrarian socialist uh populist tradition Uh, and there's a lot of there they both all these groups including the mensheviks which also came out of the social russian social democratic party they all had a great many uh changes and debates internally about strategy and what to do but as kevin says one of the things that helped allow the Bolsheviks to outpace these groups, despite often having less popular support before 1917 than, say, the social revolutionaries, was their uncompromising position against World War I, which was uh, extremely damaging to Russia. Uh, they were losing a lot of people, economically devastating, incompetently pursued, and the socialist revolutionaries and the Mensheviks were unwilling to denounce the war. Uh, and so you could get guys like Bukharin saying, well, yeah, well, if you like it so much, why don't you go down there? Whereas the Bolsheviks always had a very consistent platform, land-bred peace, uh, that they pursued and it turned out to uh, resonate with people. Um, the The part you say about the women's uh, issues is also very interesting. Uh and so so roughly roughly what percentage of the employees at this factory were women versus men by the by the time the revolution breaks out
1: by 1917 there's over th- of a workforce of roughly 3000 about 10% uh, were women oh wow well um, i mean that's and that, yeah and that figure is going up right because yeah. um not only was there the war? Was was the war a major factor, a factor in this whole process? But it also meant that the militants um, were often sent to the front, and they knew it. Mm. You know, so going back to your point about the militancy, uh, and I've I've looked at the pictures and uh, the descriptions of, of their own level of commitment in 1917. And to me, it's just. Um, it's very inspiring, but mm. it's also it's a little bit scary because they knew what they were facing. Oh that yeah, if they made a mistake, or they weren't well organized. Um, you know, it could literally be a a, a question of life and death being mm. sent to the front, um, because yeah. the commanders at the front would obviously know that they had been sent from um, from the factories because of their role within. Uh, within um, mm. a revolutionary organization. Mm. So, so, so the, sorry, the, right. the role of women, the, the issue of women becomes even more important because 10% of the work, uh, roughly 10% of the workforce is women and another um, 15 to 20% are these very, by young, I mean, 16, 17 mm. year olds, uh, working in the factory as apprentices or uh, unskilled workers. So, so prior to that, the, you know if you look at 1905 to 1912, it's overwhelmingly skilled and male, and that that the demographic change um, did have a positive effect on white male workers taking the concerns. Of other workers more more uh, seriously. So there's a, there's a dynamic um, which I touched on earlier, which is even more important uh, in 1917. Um, when oh, no, you look at the demands, and I, I list there's a, there's like a, a 17 point uh, list of demands, and a lot of the several of those demands are explicitly to ra- raise issues that. Um, were of concern to women about mm-hmm. having separate uh, um, cleaning facilities and wages and so on.
0: Interesting. So, what what changed after October in the metal factory?
1: So that's that's one of the big questions. And what I found, so so, I should say that starting in. Um, December of 1917, uh, the United States, and there's a very good book by David Fogel's, uh, Fogelsong, which is hardly ever mentioned by a- academics. In fact, I am not aware in uh, 27 years since it's been published of one academic from the United States even mentioning it. But he he wrote a book, David Fogelsong wrote a book called America's Secret War Against Bolshevism. Mm. Now, most people know that the United States had a, a, a force in Vladivostok, and um, there were between 80,000 and 100,000 foreign troops. But what's less well known is the financing of the white armies by the United States and other European powers mm. to basically crush the revolution. So, one of the arguments. And this happens almost right from the start. Um, so Wilson has a public um, face that he's saying, well, we're against the Bolsheviks. We want democracy. Um, anybody familiar with uh, American foreign policy during the 20th century will know that that refrain um, rings pretty hollow. And in the Bolshevik case, right from the start, they started funding um what i consider a terrorist organization of whites that probably would not have even gotten off the ground without massive hundreds of millions of dollars and in mm-hmm. over inflation over the last century means that instead of thinking in terms of millions we can think in terms of billions mm-hmm. uh, but that organization had a major problem when they first started and organized on the don uh they had about 2,000 um, people that heeded the call to, to, for a white organization, kind of revolutionary organization to challenge the Bolsheviks, but 98% of them were officers. Uh, so they, they had yeah. a major problem. So they, they needed massive funding. They were called the Voluntary Army, but they were anything but a Voluntary mm. Army um and over the course of the next three years as we know there was a bloody civil war now before i do want to talk about the politics of the factory during the civil war but i also want to mention that the bolshevik theoretical premise had been that and it was not far-fetched that in isolation the, given the backwardness of Russia, the question always was, and there's, here's where the Bolsheviks had a different position from the, the Mensheviks and the SRs. The question was, well, if we do succeed, what is going to happen, given, given our general economic backwardness um, in Russia? And the question that Trotsky originally, but then Lenin also, Um, took up starting in April of 1917 was that um, we couldn't really go halfway. And this is one of the divisions that that occurred during the course of 1917. The Bolsheviks had positioned previously that they would have a provisional revolutionary government, but it would be limited to um, uh, a bourgeois revolution. And Lenin, to his credit, recognized that the contradiction of that, and the, the Mensheviks held on to a different version that said basically we have to go through a period of extended capitalist development, mm. um, but that led them to support uh, the the Minister of Labor, Skobelev, to support. Um, capital versus the working class, and Lenin very early on understood this contradiction. But the conundrum was still there, right? That is, if the working class takes power, what would happen? And the argument of Lenin uh, and Trotsky um, and other leading Bolsheviks—it was actually the, the policy of the Bolshevik government, it should yeah. be said—that there there would be, that Russia should not be looked at in isolation. And there's a map um that i show in my class of the workers councils that really erupted in 1918 1919 um including almost all of central europe by 1919 you have the occupation of the factories in italy Uh um austria hungary and even in some places far west as uh, i believe it's um uh I think it's in Limerick, in Ireland. There was workers' councils in even in Ireland, and you have a a massive working class movement in Great Britain. Um, So the theory of this international revolt was not a pipe dream. Is the point I'm trying to make? That Mm -hmm. is, there was a massive uh, convulsion throughout most of the industrialized, even in Seattle, in the United States in 1919. Um, still strike. You have a massive movement um, that becomes very political. So, uh, but the problem for the Bolsheviks was that it did not take power in other countries, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so instead of having these um, foreign pa- um, working classes coming to the aid of the revolution in Russia, you had the reverse. You had the the ruling classes of Europe coming to the aid of the whites. Hmm. And it's a fairly um, difficult, obviously a very difficult period. But from the perspective of the factory, what I found interesting is that um, a lot of the historiography talks about how vicious the Bolsheviks were. And, and to, to some extent, that's definitely true. I mean, they confiscated grain. The argument was that if we don't have grain, the revolution is going to die. Yeah. There was famine throughout uh, most of the Soviet Union in, in those years. By 1919, and this factory, which previously had 3,000 workers at its height in 1917, was reduced to about 600 and four. A good number of months, there was absolutely no work whatsoever because um, the sources that were needed for the factory simply weren't arriving in Moscow. So you you have this contradiction of these high aspirations in 1917, the more militant workers um, volunteering uh, for the Red Army, which to me was one of the key Um, aspects of why the Bolsheviks won, Uh uh, that and the fact that the white uh, armies were uh, particularly vicious to um, the peasants. Uh Not to to, um, avoid some of the nastiness that the Bolsheviks themselves had done, but the the whites were an order of magnitude mm-hmm. nastier, uh, particularly uh, in the Ukraine and their support of uh, anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and uh, pogroms in the Ukraine. So but within the factory, what I found interesting is that it becomes a much less political period. That is a lot of the political meetings. And you, I use the attendance figures of the, of the meetings to show that. Workers simply didn't care. They didn't. They could have a meeting on the situation in in the Civil War, and nobody would show up. But mm. then, then they would have a meeting on food, and the entire factory would show up. Yes, so that was that was the reality of the situation during the Civil War. Um, but then you also had things like just to show the relative weakness of the state. You had people stealing nails and bolts and all kinds of things from the factory in order to try to survive that is if they had a bag of nails that they could uh sell on the street for uh a few rubles and and buy a few males for the for their family they would Mm. do it in fact there was a a women's organized theft ring that i found uh, information on that and it's understandable and 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 the bolsheviks Far from having um, uh, a crackdown, some of these women who were leaders of the organized theft ring were arrested. But for the most part, if you were caught leaving the factory, and it happened all the time, uh, there was there was no um, reprisal against you. It would have meant that the six hundred would have been down to much, even much less than that. That it was it was it was. It was understood that it was part of the survival strategy. So a fairly apolitical, demoralizing, um, very difficult period. But it was not what I tried to do in that brief section on the Civil War was to show that um, far from the the strong Bolshevik state stamping its ruthlessness on the working class mm. that is, you you basically don't have much of a working class even in the capital of the the soviet union and you really don't have much of a state that is the state is focused almost exclusively on the survival and victory in the civil war mm.
0: yeah yeah that's interesting because i i wanted to get a little bit as we're, as we're going through this into the historiography that you were intervening in, because there is this sort of idea that, uh, like you said, that the Bolsheviks uh, sort of foisted themselves on the working class by force, or that they may have supported the Bolsheviks, but then Stalinism foisted itself, uh, or that the workers themselves were enthusiastic Stalinists, you get a lot of uh, different back and forth. And mostly what I've seen of that is, like I said, very high level um, analysis that doesn't really get into what the workers were experiencing and what they actually did. So so once the Re- once the civil War is, is won, you know, the I guess the the bourgeois powers decide that uh, it, you can maintain kind of a cordon sanitaire without actually overthrowing. The Soviets. What what starts to happen? Do do does working class politics kind of come back to the factory? Do they get repoliticized, or or kind of what happens?
1: Right. So so, I think you're right to raise the larger theoretical issues re- related to sort of the rise of Stalinism. And the, the there's two points I want to make. One is to just repeat the point I made earlier. It's somewhat disingenuous of anti-communist historians to, and you'll see this in almost any, the history of almost any revolutionary movement, to be quiet about essentially the hired guns of Western imperialism, then not even mention it. So over the course of the past 27 years, this notion of um, of a military dictatorship. And that's those are the words that um the Secretary of State Lansing used in in some of his private memos mm-hmm. in the David fogelson book. To not even mention that, that that the intention of the United States was to set up a military dictatorship that was amenable to the US. And then on the other hand, complain that the Bolshevik Bolsheviks were not democratic enough. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right. right?
1: We can have a discussion about that, but unless you're you, the prerequisite to that discussion, in my opinion, has to be to come to terms with with uh, what the United States you know, is. In some ways, very similar to to Vietnam. You can right. say, "Well, we didn't. We don't like the politics of the NLF." Well, do you like the politics of the puppet um, yeah. dictators that you put in? Um, with no popular support. right? So the, but the larger issue about, there's a couple the other, the second point I want to mention about Stalinism, which I think gets lost in most of the academic work on the early Soviet period and the larger questions which you're posing about the advent of Stalinism is that it's true on the one hand that Stalin, especially from 1922 on, uh, uh in his position as general secretary had aspirations to be the leader or the the dictator of the of the Bolshevik party. There's no doubt about that that is he is removing even in 1922 he's starting to remove people that are uh against them and pr- promoting people that are um that are favorable to whatever he is doing, which changed quite frequently. But the other part of that is the social policies of Stalin, and from a theoretical point of view, and I think it—I'll it, get into some of the specifics in the factory. But uh, Michelle Ryman wrote a wrote a very good book on um, the origins of Stalinism, and, the, and one of the arguments that he makes is that we have to remember especially when we, when we have this discussion with people that are um, less than um, willing to come to terms with some of the larger questions of, of the early 1920s, that Stalin in his social policies up until 1927 was an advocate of net. Mm. That is, and he, this is a book that was written in 1986 and nothing since then, has been shown by any historian that that Stalin had this secret plan to not only be a dictator but inst- but to institute policies that were draconian not only against the workers but also against the peasants now that's to me that's a pretty important argument right mm. because then we have to look at neP and what kind of society it was um, without necessarily lo- using labels. Um, I think that NEP society, and I, I think I tried to show this in the three chapters on, uh, or I think I did show this uh, on in the three chapters on NEP, was a fairly lenient society. Mm-hmm. And also took the concerns of workers quite seriously, whether it was on trade union issues, whether it was on uh, women's issues with the with the delegates meetings that I talk about Um whether it was uh, religious belief, the majority of party members even were um, uh, uh, were Orthodox believers. right? But Stalinism as a social system, distinct from his aspirations as a dictator, as a socialism, the argument that getting back to Ryman that I think helps set the context for uh, a useful discussion about NEP is that it was really the crisis of late nap that that encourages or even forces Stalin to change his tune. that is, uh, to um, especially compared to earlier 20, 1925 1926, you had fairly positive um, uh, produce being um, being sent from the countryside, to the cities, um, 27, 28, the harvest was not as good. And there was also rapid inflation such that in 1927 workers, uh, I'm sorry, peasants in the countryside were less than um, thrilled to sell their produce on the market at a much worse rate than it had been previously, um, which led Stalin to start to look for more draconian policies in the countryside um so you had uh, a food crisis throughout the so a, a worsening food crisis it gets much worse over the next five years but you have the beginnings of a food crisis um rampant inflation how they tried to deal with this in isolation was to print more money hmm. which did not solve the problems and in fact um Wages had gone up steadily since the end of the Civil War till 1925, 1926, when they actually were about the same, or maybe even a little higher than the pre-war period. But starting in 1927 with rampant inflation, um, you can see that Stalin was trying to come to turn, and this is the argument of, of Ryman is that he, it, Stalinism was a reaction to this increased um, crisis not just in the countryside but also in the cities because the factories um the the, the recovery from the civil from the the destitution of the civil war mm. meant that they they recovered by 1926 but then the question is how do they how do they fund further expansion beyond that right. and
0: exactly. you have
1: machinery starting to falter um and all sorts of problems that that Ryman makes the argument that this crisis, which becomes worse, progressively worse starting in 1927, meant that Stalin uh, attempted to search for what Ryman calls extremist solutions, Hmm. meaning that um, the the crisis brought together forces that were becoming the vehicles for extremist solutions required the, re- the existence of a ruling stratum that was separated from the people, that is both mm. the workers and the peasants, and hostilely dis- uh, disposed towards them. And mm. no anybody in the leadership by that point who attempted to speak in the name of either the workers or the peasants was, was, um, uh, was suppressed. So the 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 political rise of Stalinism, I think, has to be situated, or the not not his personal dictatorship, because by this time he's he's pretty much in control. He, he's very much in control after he uh, removes the Trotskyists and then uh, those who are sympathetic to Bukharin the year later. Um, but the political, the social program of Stalinism, is a program of and I make this argument in the last chapter of the book, it's a program of the accumulation of capital at the expense of both the peasantry and the workers. Hmm. Uh, And then that, so that's, that's a a wider theoretical argument that I think that is useful by Ryman that I try to show. And I didn't work backwards. I didn't say, well, I have to find facts that fit into Ryman, but I, I found Ryman after I had done most of my work, that mm-hmm. it, it makes sense from a theoretical perspective. Because in the factories, even in 1925, the director of the factories, and this is when Stalin um, is pretty firmly situated. He says that the workers run, uh, are, are the main force in the factories. That is, they they have more control than management over what happens on the shop floor. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement to say eight years after the revolution. That Mm. is, the trade unions um, and uh, the other political organizations at the grassroots level had enormous authority within the workplace. Mm. And it's not just my opinion. It's the opinion of management Mm -hmm. uh, at the factory level
0: interesting so just briefly for the listener NEP is a new economic policy correct
1: right so NEP is what comes after um, what comes after the Civil War mm-hmm. and the major points of nep were to essentially there were taxes on the peasants but it was basically leave the peasant uh, 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 Lenin was the advocate the the, the, the Along with Bukharin, uh were the fiercest advocates of NEP, and he basically said, "If we're gonna, if we're gonna have a revolution, we have to meet the needs of the overwhelming majority of the population." Uh, in some ways, it harkened back to 1917, where Lenin basically forced through the peace proposal against the, uh, uh, what uh, at the time in, in 1918 was um a majority for for a period of time and he did it because he said well we made the promise of well there was another problem he didn't have an army but right he also said that look we made a promise for peace and so we have to stand by that and then i think in some ways not that the bolsheviks you know i'm not an apologist for everything the, the bolsheviks did but it was to lenin's credit and the bolsheviks credit that they recognized that um that you can't have an, an egalitarian society when the majority of people in the countryside um, are against your policies, right? I mean, it, it, so Net really was le- for the most part. There were taxes, some taxes on the peasants, but it was pretty much leave the peasants alone and improve the well-being of workers in the cities, um, in the factories, and. Try to create institutions that, during the course of the Civil War, had been weakened, and have the trade unions represent their grievances. Have the women's organization take up the the concerns of women, uh, and have and have the party play a role in all of this, but not necessarily a front organization within the factory where the the party leadership decides everything because Mm. there were quite a few dissidents uh, on the factory committee. In fact, some of the elections did not even have a majority of of party members on it Mm. uh, that defended the workers rights within the factory. And they also had institutions like, um, you know, I did a study um, after I finished my, uh, my book, I did a study of the strike movement during NEP. And what I found interesting is that repression, in the sense of either firing workers or or, um, or arresting them was actually a distinct minority of the time. It's about 0.9 percent of the time where workers did um, the, the state resort to um, draconian methods. Most of the time, the trade unions um, negotiated some sort of settlement uh, within the factories um, and. Uh, repression was you know, the, the image of the state coming in and doing nasty things right. to workers. Is, it, it's a nice paradigm, but it just doesn't fit the reality of, right. of what happened. So,
0: so, so, you're
1: happened. Sa- yep.
0: so you're saying that when there were strikes in this post-revolutionary, post-Civil War period, the state wouldn't come down and break heads. They would talk to the to the unions and kind of. Get it sorted out that way,
1: right? So, uh, so I wrote a a paper, um, that I looked at. So, there's these I I used some of these reports that were specific to my fact to the to my factory, but I, I also used some from other factories within my book. But then I tried to generalize on it because the OGPU, which is the political police, there's a 13 volume set. Um, from 1922 to 1934, uh, that I have, um, that goes through strikes. So you have like a straight report from Moscow that will mention the the hammer and sickle factory, but then it will have reports from all over the Soviet Union. Yes, and a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, it will explain how the strike um, was resolved. Mm-hmm. Now, on paper, these strikes were wildcat strikes. That is, they had annual um, contract negotiations, which workers uh, were expected and did participate in the discussions and then would ratify. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would defeat the the, proce- the proposal, but most of the time they would go along with it, not because it was being rammed down their throats, but because it it Guaranteed increases in real, real wages. The the um, the conflict commissions defended workers the majority of the time. Um, mm-hmm. So the and also when they raised grievances, workers would take those concerns seriously. Now there there's problems with it, but what I argue is that there was essentially um, a social contract that was constructed during NEP. Mm-hmm. So one. What strikes meant were that some workers um, would go on strike b- despite that, for whatever reason, because maybe the manager um, ignored the collective agreement or maybe they were just unhappy. Mm-hmm. So what I tried to do was put the various reasons for um, these contract these strikes into different categories. So one percent of the time, less than one percent of the time, the resolution involved some sort of arresting of workers. 8% of the time, workers were fired. So there was some repression. 17% of the time, management simply refused workers' demands and they went back to work. But the other, uh, and uh, there were 3% of the time when workers just left the factory. But 45% of the time, the union convinced management to meet some or even all of their demands Um, or the union came in and somehow worked out some sort of compromise with management, Mm. which means that you have a social institution that is, so it's not just my opinion, it's the workers themselves are responding positively to this sort of union representation. And in fact, um, E.H. Carr wrote some 12 volumes on the Russian revolution Mm. shows that even as late as 1927, 1928 millions of workers. I think the figure is something like it's in my book. I don't have it, uh, but I think it's about seven or 8 million workers per year are turning to their union organizations. And this is when things are getting worse for the working class, but they're still looking to the working class institutions, the trade different trade unions, to appeal for their grievances. And the reason they're doing that is because previously they, they got a positive re- response they recognized um, these workplace institutions that were, were worth something. In fact, there's one anecdote I wanted to give from the hammer and sickle factory is that these grievances that were handled by the union, the union made a point that and they published the reports. They had quarterly and annual reports that showed what percentage of the time the grievances of workers were. were and these are not strikes, these are just general grievances. And there's oh. literally millions of these that Carr and Davies talk about in their book. But in the hammer and sickle factory, I, I found this one interesting time period. And it's near the end of the quarter where absolutely everyone of the grievances that go to arbitration are cited on the half of the workers. Hmm. And then I noticed that in the next the next week, so that happens for a period of a couple of weeks, every arbitration is going to the side of the workers. The next week there's a report and the report says for the previous quarter, 51% of all grievances were cited for the workers. Meaning that over the last couple of weeks, it was something less than 50%. And the workers knew that Um, and they wanted, so the the trade union had to push extra hard near the end of the quarter, just to show that it's not as simple as some sort of backroom deal with management Hmm. and corrupt uh, union officials. That is, they published the reports and there's all sorts of complaints in late net 1927, 1928, where during the crisis of late NEP where union members are saying, and that, and this is not just in hammer and sickle, it's in the GPU rep- OGPU reports where they're saying, hey, what's going on here? The the union used to represent us pretty well. We used to win a majority of the, the disputes, but that's, that's a thing of the past. What's going mm-hmm. on? Here? So you see the rising level of um, discontent near the end of NEP um, that fits in with this you know, the crisis of late nep, but prior to that, um was doing a pretty you know, I don't want to admit, paint it in too rosy a picture, but mm. from a perspective of um a trade unionist, you would say that they were doing a pretty good job if I, I think any trade unionist would have to say they were doing a pretty good job if a majority of the disputes are um are resolved in the in the favor of the workers who
0: manages the factories at this point
1: yes so so the the bolsheviks had a policy of what was what was termed um the triangle which meant that management and they had instituted one-man management would um and you also had syndicates Metal syndicates, different uh, textiles, um, different types of industry would have syndicates. But within the factory, the understanding was that there was cooperation amongst what was termed the triangle that is, management, the party, and the trade unions would cooperatively work together to um, resolve issues, but also to work together to whether it was raising productivity or wa- raising wages. Now with that, that's more of a political issue, right? Because that becomes, um, in the first five-year plan, um, maybe I'm reading something into, too much into your question, but th- that dynamic of, of the triangle actually changes during the first five-year plan. Because with um, what I described as Stalin's, um, mandate to catch up with the west within 10 years which is what he says in uh, fairly prophetically uh um during the first five-year plan that is productivity really comes to the fore during their first five-year plan mm. so prior to that you have this um again it's not a perfect system but you have cooperation between management the trade union in the party mm-hmm. and the reputation of the party members sometimes would suffer if they didn't side with the workers and they recognize this there's all sorts of um worker grievances that the party used to stand for us and now there's you know, by late net they're saying they used to stand with us and now they stand for management and then also within the trade unions um Similar grievances, but even in twenty seven twenty eight, it's less than the, some of the arguments that are made by party members or council members. But in, in the five first five year plan, there's a major revision of this dynamic, and it's really geared towards changing. So, if we look at it as a social contract, even in a distorted form, and I wanted, I tried to avoid using labels for the for this period and say what kind of society it's not it's not to me it's not so much it's not so important what kind of label we put on it but what was the what were the relations between the different forces whether you know what was the party and the trade union simply just subordinate to the mandates of management which was subordinate to a syndicate, which was subordinate to the party, or was there more give and take? And I would argue, as I have, that um, during NEP, there was a lot of give and take. That is no matter what label we have, we can see that there's, um, you know, for instance, I haven't talked very much about the situation with women, but the majority of women were showing up at, at their meetings. Uh, which I found very fascinating. Mm. That is, they were coming to meetings and, and raising issues about health care or childcare or wages or whatever their concerns were, and they got a positive response. Now, what happened by the end of NEP was that as productivity, 1927, especially by 1928, in fact, there's a protest um, uh, amongst the women on International Women's Day because the speaker is a man. Mm. and they basically come in and bust they're accused in the factory newspaper of being drunk i don't know if that's true but they were certainly um angry Mm. um, at this report by uh the male speaker on the situation of women in the factory because previously women spoke for themselves um but by 1928 the majority of women were no longer going to meetings so i use that metric if they're not going to meetings there's something wrong yeah uh they're it, it, in their own eyes they're not seeing this as an, especially if they're showing up on women's international women's day and raising hell and mm. complaining about uh the situation in the factory which they did on uh, on march 8th uh, 1928 so the dynamic starts to change by 1928 and then I would say there's a qualitative change during uh, the first five-year period. That is, the union is transformed into into an institution to raise productivity. There's all sorts of productivity schemes, um, such as shock work. Mm. Um, If you want to eat well, you have to join a shock worker brigade, which means you have to work extra hard to meet Mm -hmm. some quota. Um, And then they have um, the best shock worker brigades because that becomes flooded with workers who want to eat. Mm. Um, And so only the best shock workers brigades are getting the best best rations. Mm. And what I found, it was not so much, there was repression. There were certainly cases of repression uh, in hammer and sickle during the first five-year plan. But the coercive tool of Stalinism within the hammer and sickle factory I argue, was basically the um, uh, food, the food Mm -hmm. rest. That is, if you wanted to survive, you had to play by the rules of the game. And if you didn't play by the rules of the game, you would see your name in the factory newspaper and and you would be called a a Kulak or... um, a drunken woman showing up at international way, you would be lambasted if you didn't play by the rules of the game. So there was a, there's a change within the political culture of the factory in which Stalinism, Stalinism as um, rhyming talks about as a, as a system, a nasty system of coercion really starts to take control during their first five-year plan silences dissent and, um, Turns these factory institutions that had been revived during the new economic policy era um, into institutions of management. So to get to, uh, I'm giving a sort of a long-winded answer to your question, but there's an enormous transformation of these institutions during the during their first five-year plan and the political culture in the factory. Mm. Now the the the, the problematic. Re- question related to that is well what did workers really think were they going along with it mm-hmm. what i try to show is that all these schemes for productivity and uh, so on and the transformation of the factory of uh, the factory regime there was massive anger at what was going on and you can tell this there there's also passive resistance right because what happens is you have this um just call for shock work Mm -hmm. and it's the headline of the factory newspaper. But then you read the article and it says tomorrow we're all going to work 12 hours. Mm -hmm. It goes on and on about how great working 12 hours will be. Mm -hmm. And then within the the bowels of the article, it'll say, well, who will be the first to sign up? Uh. That is, Workers, even party members were not so thrilled at the, at the, transformation that was taking place but what they ha- what happened over a period of time is that the party did have what i think is a fairly narrow level of political support somewhat of a careerist political support of mm-hmm. um, of a lot of young workers but some skilled workers who were going along with what the the party machine was saying and then they would convince the party members to go along with the productivity drive. And then they, then they would start going after the non-party members. So there, there's, it, become, it became over a period of time, uh, it took several years really to transform these institutions into productivity organs for the state. Uh, but it didn't happen over time. And if, if you look at some of the graffiti and some of the notes to speakers, and some of the reports, like there's this one report that I found um, from the, the proletarian district of Moscow, where the factory was, where they they had this discussion, obviously, a secret agent participated in. And he said, the workers are talking about how the Soviet regime doesn't know how to finish off the working class. Hmm. You know, is that you get a glimpse. It's not as convincing as earlier, where you can... You can clearly see when the silencing of the of the working class took place, but there's still there's still um, somewhat anecdotal evidence that I within this factory itself, which I think can be generalized, um, given that this was a fairly we have to remember that Moscow one, It's it's a it's in the capital. Yes. Two, we know that um, in the capital. Stalin was smart enough to know that he had learned from the Akrona that you've got to give workers in Moscow and Leningrad uh, better rations than workers elsewhere, because if if it blows up in in Moscow, you're going to have a big problem. Mm. So better rations, mail industry, metal industry, which is a priority, um, the priority industry during the period of rapid industrialization. And yet even within, so this, is, this goes back to where we started with the question of how you, how I try to generalize from a particular factory. And, and here's the argument that I try to make, is that if it's the case that amongst the most privileged workers in the Soviet capital, in the middle, in a male, predominantly male um, workplace, had all this anger and we were not going along with what uh, perhaps dragging their feet, perhaps see, only speaking privately, sometimes with graffiti, mm. but there's enough anecdotes and private notes to speakers that shows that workers were not impressed during the, especially by the famine years in 1932, mm-hmm. 1933, even though they're surviving the The hunger of 1932 33 it was not a a jolly time for the workers that is they did not go along with what was happening Hmm. now the related issue is how do we how do we compare that to other regions and and what i tried to do i mentioned it in my book i didn't go into it in depth but in the article on strikes i i i mentioned jeff jeffrey rossman's book uh, he wrote a, a very fascinating book on uh, Ivanovo, textile workers during this, during the first five year plan from 1928 to about 1933. And this was the location of two of the major rebellions during this period. That is uh, 1932 and 1933 within um the textile industry in Ivanova, There were massive strikes. One of them, uh, one of them involved fifteen thousand workers who marched on the OGPU, the political police headquarters, and sacked it and beat up uh, some of the local officials. Um, and news of this spread quickly. In fact, that uh, Stalin sent in Kavenogitch. Uh, who was his uh, right-hand man to deal with uh, these types of problems. Um, And he came in, made promises, tried to appease the workers. And then a a few weeks later, they arrested the ringleaders. But there were a series of massive rebellions in Ivanova. Now, I think Jeff's study, uh, in some ways, is a, is a a very useful book. In fact, it's the most, in my opinion, it's the most important book on the first five-year plan uh, by far. And in some ways, it, it complements my book in the sense that I think it shows the other extreme. Well, I don't want to say extreme because I in my in the Hammer and Sickle Factory, there's festering discontent. Mm. On the extreme, you have rebellions. And the thing that, uh, and Jeff uh, talks about this in this book, the thing that that really frightened the Stalinist leadership was that some of the workers were, and it's understandable because they have relatives in the countryside, we're talking to peasants. In the countryside in 1932, thanks to the work of uh, Lynn Viola, we know that there was massive uh, resistance to um, collectivization. That is uh, in uh, 1930 alone, Lynn Viola points out that there were, and this, these are official figures, which are which are certainly partial figures of what actually took place. Because if you report, if you were the head of the OGPU in your region, um, it was not in your favor to say how many peasants participated in a rebellion. So these, the, the, these figures surely underestimate the, uh, the mm. degree of rebellion in the countryside. 2.5 million participants. High percentage of those were women. In 13,754 mass disturbances, that is involving an entire village, mm. 150, 176 of these were des- described by the OGPU as insurrectionary. That is, peasants sacked local power um, arrested um, the political or beat up the political leaders and at the local level um, and, and these are just partial figures women played a prominent role in uh, these rebellions so if people are looking for a fascinating uh, book to read I would strongly sur- if you're interested in what happens in the countryside to complement a study of the working class. I would strongly suggest you look at, uh, Lynn Viola's book, but what the authority, so these massive, there's massive resistance in the countryside and Stalin, when he talked to Churchill said that these years were the, were for him, you know, not that his ego matters at at all, but for him, they were the most difficult. And Mm. Stalin even says to Churchill that this was even worse than, uh, the period of, um, The Nazi invasion. Wow! So massive resistance in the countryside. The state concerned of these connections between a popular revolution in the cities connecting with what's already happening in the countryside. That is um, a possible repeat of of what happened in 1917. Now that did not happen, right? And I get you know there's the problem with sort of speculative what if history. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that I think we have to come to terms with, or at least try to address is why didn't workers fight back? Right. And the argument that I would make is that in some ways it's, it's, it's the norm in any society that is, we know the traditions of the Russian revolution. We know that they fought back in some places and we know they had strong institutions um in Ivanovo so what was what was the reason for this more militant um rebellion in, in in Ivanovo and one of the things that i i argue in this argument um this article on strikes is that Ivanovo and Jeff does not address this because he, he's more concerned with the first five year plan but um in during nep there was actually the the social contract that I uh, talked about in my book and earlier in this discussion never really took pl- never really engaged workers to the same extent in Ivanovo that as they kept up their militancy throughout yeah. the, the NEP period that is the contract between the state and the working class didn't have the same resonance in Ivanovo. Now why is that? I think it's because of this privileged notion that that Stalin recognized that you had to give better rations and better better food and so forth to uh, uh, material goods to the workers Mm. in priority industries and especially in Moscow and Leningrad. But the, the flip side of that is it meant that Ivanovo maintained a core of militants including quite a few Trotskyists that um, Mm -hmm. Jeff doesn't um, really, in my opinion, evaluate to the extent that maybe he should have. There's a good dozen uh, Trotskyist advocates um, and other militants. There's a large milieu of militants that had the experience, not just from 1917, but also throughout NEP, that kept up their network of resistance and then, when things got really bad during the famine of 1932-1933, they were able to to, to lead a rebellion. Mm. So just to finish on a speculative, admittedly as a speculative argument, but I I suggest that if Ivanovo had happened in Moscow, the word Stone was clearly threatened by uh, and 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 there's. OGPU reports that talk about the arrests of the leaders, but also people that were even talking about it, that he really needed to put a clamp down on this notion of a rebellion. Mm. Um, if that happened in Moscow, that would have been impossible. That is, mm. that that would have, in some ways, it would have been like the Lanham uh, Massacre of 1912, which mm. uh, inaugurated the strike wave that eventually toppled czarism that is everybody in the Soviet Union would have known about it. So that I'm trying to finish here on a, to answer one of the questions that you had posed, but also finish on, on somewhat of a positive note that, that the, the fact that workers didn't fight back, I think is somewhat understandable because it's the norm in any society that is yes. let's, let's wait to, let's wait for a better day. Look, right. arresting everybody do we really want to stick our necks out at this yeah. point when things might be bad, but they're better here in Moscow than they are in other places. And we're mm. not starving to death. Right. Shouldn't we wait to maybe things get better and then fight back? So it's, to me, it's somewhat understandable, but it's also the, The there's also the possibility that had workers in a few locations in Moscow or Leningrad fought back that the entire contour of the defeat of the russian revolution might have been very different
0: mm. yeah that's that's interesting to think about um you know it's just so many potential turning points i i wanted to get to your to what you wanted to address in terms of uh the uses and liabilities of micro history so uh how did you how did you try to avoid the problem of generalizing from the Moscow metal factory example?
1: Right. Well, that's so the, so I guess, I guess the the way I tried to answer it is by implication, right? If it's the case that, and you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, whether or not you think I've made the case that, in moscow in this metal factory that the temperament of workers was not was not pro-regime that there was a layer of workers that sided with stone stalinism but if you look at the various campaigns that i described during the first five-year plan it's a fairly thin layer Mm -hmm. especially as the factory grows and you have literally um Eight, 9,000 workers in the factory. And the core group of advocates of rapid industrialization and those that are trying to advance within the system is really only several hundred. It's pretty, the, the level of support is, is there, but it's pretty small. That mm-hmm. is, most workers are keeping their heads down. You know, there are the few. Um, people that either don't quite understand a lot of the peasants from the countryside who are entering the factory don't really understand the rules of discourse during Stalinism and are mm. labeled kulaks or the kulak sidekick who are speaking up against what's going on. Mm. But those, most of them, it's pretty hard to survive as an outspoken critic. It's impossible to survive as an outspoken critic. So people, most of the workers are. I think um, not happy with the situation and the transformation that took place and not really enthusiastic about what's going on, but not necessarily willing to fight. That is they're right. dissatisfied um, and angry about what's happening, but the attitude for the most part is let's, let's live to fight another day. Yeah. Now, if, if you think I've made that argument, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the themes that I try to, to underscore in the last chapter of the book. Then the question is, what are the parameters? And, and mm. so the, then there's the extreme. So that's the grudgingly accept what's going on. Now, if they're privileged, if they're white male metal workers in a priority industry that are getting better rations and better wages than other workers. Now, are there workers, um, and this is an assertion on my part, I'm not saying that I necessarily proved it, but if that is the case, that the workers in this factory are dissatisfied, dragging their feet, not happy, are there other workers that are happy? And I would ask, why? Why would Why would they be? If they're getting less than that, are, are they likely to be? Um, logically, is there any reason by implication that they would be more satisfied than the most privileged section of um, the Soviet working class? And I would say no. Mm-hmm. And then on the other extreme, you have um, Ivanova. And that's why I, I use, um, in this article on Strikes, I use Jeff's um, On a graph to show that there were workers that did fight back, Mm -hmm. and then what I use are, and this is anecdotal because it's at least for the first five year period. It's it's as a source, it becomes harder and harder uh, to use because a lot of the reports are distorted and simply not telling the truth, and a lot of the strike reports during their first five years they don't even use the word strike. Um, so, it's really more complicated to look at um, uh, the OGP reports for that period with a high degree of certainty that you can earlier. But I do, there's enough anecdotal information to basically show that a lot of the sentiments that were present within the Moscow metal works were in factories throughout the Soviet Union. Mm. But that part of my argument uh, is admittedly anecdotal. That is somebody, if you you—if you wanted to say, well, you haven't really proved it for every corner of the Soviet Union. So it's more of a logical argument yeah, rather, with some anecdotal support. Sure. But I guess I would also respond to what I think is a really important question by, by also asking a question that I... Uh, stated earlier, is that why would workers be happier? Right. If they're if they're getting less, if we know that workers are dissatisfied amongst privileged workers, why would workers in some other locale um, be happier with their situation? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think by it- implication, it's not it's not. I agree with you, Pete. It's not it's not proof, but it's it's by implication.
0: Yeah, and I think any historian is going to have to do that unless they're uh, writing very, unless they're unless they're trying to do microhistory that doesn't make larger claims. At which point, there's questions about relevance, right? That's kind of the basis of what historians do: is trying to generalize as uh, rationally and uh, with as much empirical backup as they can from examples uh, that they find in the in the in the archive. And I think you I think you did a good job with it. I think among other things, it's very the the workers really come alive and they're human, right. I think that it's all too easy to abstract uh, the the working people of history that to treat them like, so many uh you know uh d- just kind of a statistical reality but what we get here is that they're not static they're not always thinking the same thing at the same time they're responding to their to to the things that are happening in their lives whether they can get food whether what the working conditions on the shop floor are how you can respond to a manager who might be sexually harassing you and political their own political aspirations their own inspiration by the revolution their own desire uh to see a better society so on and so forth so i think you did a pretty good job um with with the the issue of generalizing from a comparative microcosm uh so is there anything else uh you want to say i want to be mindful of your time uh so yeah we can wrap up now if you're if you're good or we can uh
1: i wanted to thank you uh pete i mean this this was really um for me it was a very fascinating discussion and i i appreciate the thought you put into uh into your your questions and i i hope that the listeners find it uh, uh useful and i guess i would finish on one sort of um self-serving plug is that if somebody if any of the people listeners are out there are interested in finding out more about the russian revolution and um hopefully reading my book um i do teach a course that pretty much covers the entire revolutionary period um uh up until today uh within the soviet union russia at umass boston and um it's the case that any almost anybody can uh, register for the course, um, but especially if any of the listeners or students at UMass Boston.
0: Yeah, yeah. Anyone in the Boston area, especially UMass students, should uh, go uh, take Kevin's yep. class. Kevin, thank you very much for uh, coming on.
1: All right. Well, thanks a lot, Peter. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay. Have uh, and that 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 wraps up
1: this podcast. Thank you, folks. Thank you, listeners. Have a good one.